I pray you guys are safe and you haven't gone too crazy yet being cooped up in the house all this time. We are finishing up, Lord willing, Matthew 24 today, 24 into 25. So our passage of scripture is going to be Matthew 24, verse 40, and we're going to end in verse 13 of Matthew 25. So just by way of introduction, in in many places in the Bible, Jesus tells us to watch, to be on guard, to stay awake. He tells us to be on guard, to watch, to stay awake, because he wants us to be prepared. Now, we prepare for hurricanes, we prepare for storms, we prepare for long trips, so why wouldn't we be prepared for the coming of our Lord? How much more important is that than anything else that we prepare for? And at the end of this message, hopefully we're going to talk about how we can prepare, what we should be doing to prepare for His coming. Listen, I get a little excited about Bible prophecy, if you haven't been able to tell that already. I get excited because when I see the world around me, what's going on in the world around us today and all that's taken place and you can literally see the pages of scripture come alive right before your very eyes. And I know, I know when I see that, my brothers and sisters in the Lord who know Bible prophecy know when we see this, that the return of our Lord is that much closer for his church that we need as his bride to be prepared for his coming. And that, that wakes me up, knowing that wakes me up. It instills a sense of urgency in me to tell others, to tell others to be prepared, and to be prepared myself. It reminds me, and I hope it reminds you, to live each day as if he could return today, because he could. He could return before we finish this message this morning. Jesus warns us, be prepared, be watchful, be on guard, because we do not know the day of his, or hour of his return. And make no mistake, there is no doubt about this. Jesus is coming back for his church. Jesus is coming to judge the world. And Jesus wants us to be prepared for his coming. He even gave us signs that when we see these signs, know that the return of his return is near. So, we're going to look at We've been looking at those signs the last five messages. We're going to look at a few more signs today. And Lord willing, um, we're going to end our study in Matthew 24 this morning. Next week, of course, is Easter Sunday, so there'll be an Easter message. And then, Lord willing, we're going to pick up that following week with Revelation chapter 1. So let's dig in this morning what the Lord would have for us. Matthew 24, verses 40 through 41. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. So I went a little further, but Lord, we just pray this morning as we dig into your word, as we study these passages of scriptures, Lord, that you would instill in each of us a real sense of urgency, a real sense that we need to be prepared A real sense, Lord, that we need to be watching and waiting in anticipation for your return. So go before us this morning, Lord. And all who are listening, help them, Lord, to understand that 
This isn't something that we just made up. This, is, this has been talked about in Scripture for centuries, Lord. This is your hand. That's what makes the Bible so unique. Prophecy is your signature on this book, and I pray, Lord, that those listening would, would just have the scales fall from their eyes, that they would know that they know that they know that this is true. I pray that you'd put it on their heart right now, Lord. We ask it in your precious name. Amen. One will be taken, the other will be left. And I personally believe this is a reference to the rapture of the church. One will be taken, the other left. One will be taken in the air to meet the Lord, and one will be left behind. And we're going to look at the rapture in more detail when we get to Revelation chapter 4. So that's just a little enticement for you to keep um, watching and listening and, and joining us on Sunday mornings. A friend of mine messaged me the other day and, and said, is the rapture real? And I said, absolutely the rapture is real. But the problem is that a lot of pastors don't teach about the rapture. I don't know why. Uh, you know, when, and I'm not criticizing any of my brothers in the Lord out there, but when you teach topically through the Bible, you, you can avoid a lot of the tougher passages. You can just skip right over them. When you teach verse by verse, precept upon precept, you have no other choice but to teach what's in front of you. And so maybe that's why they don't teach it. I don't know. Maybe they just don't understand it. Maybe they don't believe it. But we do believe in the rapture of the church. We believe that it absolutely will happen. And when we get to Revelation chapter 4, we're going to spend some time in that. And, and hopefully I'll make it clear as to why we believe what we believe. But listen, the thought of us being raptured out of here and, and the thought of us being raptured out of here soon has to make us want to be prepared for the coming of our Lord for his church. Let's look at verse 42 through 44. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You know, there's an old saying, I heard this a long time ago in ministry, that on any given Sunday, there are two, three rather, types of people sitting in these chairs on a Sunday morning. Believers, non-believers, and make-believers. And in a sense, Jesus is talking to all three types of people here. To the believer, to his faithful servants, to his followers, he's saying, persevere, endure, stand fast, watch, be awake, be ready, be prepared. To the non-believers, he's saying, the time to become a believer is now. Because listen, when you see the Son of Man coming in glory in the clouds, it will be too late. And then to the make-believers, he's saying, it's time to get your heart right with me. It's time to stop pretending to be a believer and submit your life wholly unto me. And so this is a message truly for the entire world, not just the church, because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16, it's a, it's a famous saying. It's a famous verse. It's probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible. If, you, if you're a fan of Tim Tebow, you saw it every Sunday in every game he played. God loves the world. He loves the believers. He loves the, 
the make-believers, and he loves the non-believers. He loves us all, and he loves us so much that he wants none of us to perish. And to do that, he sent his only begotten son to die for the sins of the whole world so that none would have to perish. But all who put their faith in him would have eternal life. All who put their faith in him would never taste the second death. But he knows the heart of man. He knows it all too well. And he knows that in the world there will be people who believe absolutely like I do, like, like mo most of the people listening to me this morning believe that he absolutely is coming back for his church. And not in the middle of the rapture, of the tribulation rather, not at, certainly not at the end of the tribulation, but in the beginning of the tribulation. And I will explain, hopefully, explain why I believe that is when we get to Revelation 4. Then there's the group who doubt that he's coming back. They once believed, but now they're not so sure. I mean, it's been 2,000 years, so maybe he's not coming back. And then there's those who do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior, and therefore they're not looking for the return of Jesus. And then, and maybe this is the worst of all, the group who profess to believe in his coming back, but live as if he will never return. And so Jesus is warning the world, whether you believe in me or not, whether you're awaiting my return or not, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're an atheist, a make-believer, a non-believer, a believer, it doesn't matter what you believe, I am coming back. Plain and simple. And for some, his return will be as a thief in the night. They won't expect it. They will never see it coming, and it will shock them when it happens. You know, I'll never forget the night our home was broken into. You know, I was at work. The boys were with their mother at basketball practice, and, and so while everyone was away that evening, a thief broke into our house through the back door. He broke out a, a pane in the window in our back door and reached in and just unlocked the door and walked in and took whatever he found. He got some cash. He got a Nintendo game, Nintendo game system. And, and apparently, unbeknownst to us, other houses in the neighborhood had been broken in as well. Now, had we known that, we'd been much better prepared for this eventuality. You know, I would have secured that back door a little bit better. I would have hid our valuables a little bit better. And maybe I would have even taken a night or two off and, and waited to welcome our unwanted guest into the home. But wouldn't you do the same thing if you knew the thief was coming? Wouldn't you do the same thing? Wouldn't you be prepared? And Jesus uses this very analogy that if you knew a thief was going to break into your home, you would be prepared against that. And I believe Jesus is speaking to us about the rapture and warning us, encouraging us, imploring us to be prepared because he's coming back and you don't want to be you don't want to find out about this the next day in the newspaper that there's I don't know I'm not going to say millions because I'm not really convinced of that but there's a lot of people missing you don't want to be the person reading that paper the next day that it was like you never knew it was happening you want to be prepared you want to know about the rapture of the church and you want to be among those who are raptured. Jesus is telling us, I'm coming. I'm coming back. And for some of you, it's going to be like a thief in the night. You're not going to be prepared for this. 
Listen, those who are left behind, those who do not leave this earth in the rapture, are going to face the seven-year tribulation. And from what I read in the Bible, I can tell you right now that that is something you do not want to go through. But I believe Jesus is speaking to the saints who are going to be raptured out of here. And the reason I believe that is because those tribulation saints, and there will be some who will be saved in the midst of the tribulation, it will be a really bad time to come to know Jesus during the tribulation. But there will be, thank God, many who will. But those tribulation saints know if they remember Bible prophecy at all, if they remember your witnessing to them and telling them about Bible prophecy, they're going to know that from the moment the Antichrist enters into the temple and desecrates it, it is three and a half years to the day when Jesus returns. So they will know when the second coming of the Lord is. So I don't believe the Lord is talking to them. I believe the Lord is talking to his church, those who will be raptured out of here. And so to illustrate his point just a little further, he tells us about the faithful and the unfaithful servant being prepared. Look at verse 45 through 51. Who then is faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware of it. And he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, Jesus never really was concerned about offending people. He was more concerned about telling people the truth. An offense never killed anyone. But not knowing the truth, dying in a lie, that's going to send many people into eternal separation. This parable that Jesus just told us is a parable about the faithful servant. The faithful servant is a believer. A believer who is going to receive the kingdom of heaven. The unfaithful servant, as, as we discovered, is not going to see the kingdom of heaven. But again, this is a message about being prepared. Are you ready for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ? This is a parable, a message about some who are prepared for this, some who are expecting this, some who are waiting for this who are looking up and waiting in joyful anticipation of the coming of our Lord for his church, who cry out every day, Maranatha, Lord, come and get us, we're ready. And then there's those who aren't ready because they do, don't believe or because they've lost hope or because they've lost faith that Jesus is returning. Jesus is talking to believers here. Make no mistake about that. One believer never loses faith that Jesus is going to return, and the other lives their life as if Jesus will never return. That's the difference here. There are self-professed believers out there who never give a thought to the return of Jesus Christ. They think the way the rest of the world does. They eat and drink and give into marriage just like in the days of Noah never thinking once of their eternal destiny, never thinking once that Jesus could come back this, today. 
And so they will be completely and totally unprepared when he does come for his church. They profess that Jesus is Lord with their lips, but they never completely surrender to him. They've never submitted to him as Lord. A believer in Jesus Christ, a true believer, is submitted and committed to him. They never lose faith. They never lose hope that his return is near. And we live our lives as if today could be the day of his return. You know, there's an account in Luke's gospel when Jesus and his family go into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, they would have traveled a long distance from Nazareth to which is by the Sea of Galilee, to Jerusalem. So they would have traveled in a large group for companionship and for safety purposes. So when they leave the city in Jerusalem, and they leave the city in a large group, so it's not like Mary and Joseph start out without Jesus, and they realize a day later that Jesus isn't with them. There's a large group traveling. And so they probably figure, like most parents, hey, he's probably playing with the other kids. And so it's a day's journey in, and they realize that he's not with the group. So they immediately go back into the city to find Jesus. And when they get back to the city, remember where they found him? They found him in the temple teaching. And Jesus said, why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Luke chapter 2, verse 49. Listen, Jesus didn't just come to heal people or to feed the multitudes. He came here to preach repentance. Repentance for the kingdom of heaven is near. And so we as Christians, we as his followers, are here for the very same purpose. We're here to be about our Father in Heaven's business, which is to be a witness to Jesus Christ. To the ends of the earth, we are to be his witness by sharing the gospel message, by telling the world of God's love for them. To be a witness to in word and in deed, meaning we don't just profess Jesus with our lips, we profess him with our lives as well but sadly what's happened in the christian community is that many have forgotten many have forgotten that jesus is coming back from his church for his church or worse yet they've given up hope that he's coming they've lost faith in his return there was a pew research study now i this is done in 2013 so it's been a while but it showed some disturbing results it took into account the percentage of Christians in the United States that, I guess the question was, do you believe that Jesus is coming back for his church within the next 40 years? So they kind of gave them a pretty liberal time frame. And so here was the result of that. 27% of Christians, we're talking about believers now, said that Jesus will definitely return. No doubt about it. 20% said he might return. Probably he will. 10% said he definitely will not return. And then 28% said, eh, maybe. We doubt it, but could be. And that left 14 that said they didn't know at all. Now, even though this research was done seven years ago, I'm sure the number of those who believe that his return can happen, or do not believe, rather, that his return will happen in the next 40 years has grown since then. And the point that Jesus is making in this parable is there are Christians who are anxiously awaiting his return, and while they're waiting, they're about their father's business, they're living as if he could return today. 
And listen, there are things in this world that we must do. We have to go to work. We have to provide and care for our families. There's things in this world that we like to do. We like to go out and we like to have good time. We like to, to share our time with our family and be with our family and friends. And we have to occupy where we're on this earth. But we need to do that with the attitude that this earth is in our home. There's, too many people have become so attached to this place that they don't look for the return of Jesus Christ because this has become their home, and it was never intended to be, especially for a believer. This is not our home. Our home is in heaven with our Lord. We belong to Jesus Christ. He bought and paid for us by his blood on the cross. We belong to him. He redeemed us. He washed us clean, and he sealed us so that we know we are his. And so we are to be about our Father's business while taking care of the things that we need to take care of on this earth. So we are, we say it all the time, we are in this world, but we are not to be of this world. And a faithful servant understands that. And even though our Master Jesus Christ has been gone for over 2,000 years, we don't grow weary waiting for his return. We anticipate that he can return at any moment, like I said, before we even finish this message. And so we try to live our lives in light of that truth. But Jesus tells us that there are others out there. There are professing believers who have grown weary, who have lost hope in his return, who are not, no longer looking for him to come back, but are living as the world lives. They've gone back into, their, into the world. They, they're living their lives as if, as if Jesus is not coming back. You know, when Moses went up on the mountain, he went up to receive the law of God. And this is what was going on at the base of the mountain while he was on the mountain receiving the law. Now, when the people saw Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as, this, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up here out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And you remember the story, those of you who, who read the Bible. You know, he had all, Aaron had all the people bring their gold to him, and, and they cast it in the fire. And then just this calf, this golden calf, just popped up out of the fire. They have no idea how that happened. It just popped right up, as, as ha tends to happen when you throw all your gold in a fire. A golden calf just tends to pop up. Moses had only been gone 40 days and nights. 40 days. That's all it took for the people to grow weary and turn to another God, turn to their own God, a God of their own creation. Jesus has been gone for 2,000 years, and many who say they believe, who have professed a belief in Jesus Christ, have grown weary. They've turned to the gods of this world. Gods that they've created. You know, the people at the base of Mount Sinai were worshiping a golden calf. That was the idol that just popped up out of the fire. What gods or idols do we serve today? What gods or idols does the world serve today? Sports, entertainment, the internet, money, careers, hobbies, the list goes on and on and on. An idol is anything that takes the place of God in your life. You know, one of the positives that has come out of this coronavirus crisis is that all those idols have been taken down. They've all been taken down. And people are beginning to look up now, look toward God. They have nowhere else to turn. 
They can't turn to their idols anymore. So they're turning to God. Their eyes are being opened. The scales are falling from their eyes. And they realize, they're coming to the realization that they need to change their lives. They need to change the way they're living. They need to change the path that they're on. Because, listen, all of those things, those idols tend to hypnotize us. You know, I look at even my grandchildren, and their faces are in those iPads and on a phone screen all day long. They're being hypnotized by the world around them. And people, the scales are beginning to fall from their eyes now. They're beginning to realize that none of those idols, none of those things that they've been worshiping all these years can save them in the midst of a crisis. And they're beginning to realize that they truly need to get their lives right by God, by, right with God, rather. And, and I truly believe that God is shaking up this world. He's waking up this world waking them up to the realization that they need him and nothing else or no one else. The point is that idols have replaced God in this world. Even those who claim to be believers have turned from their faith and returned to the world and consider themselves, still consider themselves, faithful servants. And these are the unfaithful servants that Jesus is referring to. They've lost hope. They've lost hope. They're thinking to themselves, well, you know, it's like everyone else says. It's been over 2,000 years. Where is he? It's been so long. And Jesus tells us that he who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew 24, 13. Those faithful servants who endure the mocking, who endure the ridicule, who endure the hatred and the persecution, those who work, who study, who live in this world but are not of this world, they refuse to become part of this world, those who go through all of that and still wait in joyful anticipation of our Lord, those are the ones that our Lord is coming back for. Paul tells us, tells followers of Christ this. He said, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? That's found in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Why would Paul say something like that? Because there are Christians who profess knowing Jesus and are acting like they don't know him. They may have lost hope. Maybe that's the problem. They may have lost their faith. But whatever the reason, they're living their lives as if Jesus is not coming back. And they certainly never give a thought that Jesus could come back at any moment. And Paul tells us, listen, if you are of the faith, if you are a Christian, if you are a believer, you need to be examining yourself on a regular basis to see if you truly are of the faith. If you're living your lives in a manner that represents God. You know, listen, the time to get our lives right with God is now. It's now, especially if you are a professing believer in Jesus Christ. If you are the person that Jesus is talking about here, the time to get right with Jesus is now because once the rapture of the church occurs, it's too late. It's too late. But many will hear this message, and they've heard these words before from other pastors, and they'll say, I know I need to get my life right with the Lord. I know. But you know what? I've got time. It's been 2,000 years. It could be another 2,000 years. It could be 40 years. I have time. Jesus said, I come as a thief in the night, meaning we do not know the day or hour of his return. And for many, for many, our end of this earth, our end time ending on this earth ends with the stopping of the beating of our heart. 
And no one knows the day or the hour when that will happen either. So in my opinion, if you think you have time, you do not have any time. The time is now. And if you haven't been walking with him, if you've lost hope, if you've given up, if you've lost faith, because he's been away for so long, the time to surrender your life, to submit to him, is now. Because these next few verses that we're going to read are the scariest ones yet. Turn to chapter 25. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest we should not have enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you do not know the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now remember, Jesus has been warning us, and he continues to warn us in chapter 25 as you go through the rest of that chapter to be prepared. And so he uses another parable now to warn us about the importance of being prepared for his coming. And again, I believe Jesus is speaking about the rapture of the church. And he's warning the church. And he's warning us that some will miss the rapture. There's another scary verse in the Bible in Matthew 7, right, that says, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we heal people in your name? Jesus, they're believers. And what did Jesus say to them? Go from me. I never knew you. This, these 13 verses right here are probably just as scary, if not scarier, than that verse. Listen, I know that these words are controversial. And I know that they do not fill seats on a Sunday. Nobody wants to hear this. But it's the truth. And sadly, that's why people struggle with this, because it is the truth. And the sad truth is that there's many today who say, Jesus, 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 but they're not referring to the Jesus of the Bible. They formulated their own Jesus. They've made him into their own image. Let me tell you about another golden calf in the Bible. In the days when Israel was split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, there was a king by the name of Jeroboam. He was the king of the northern kingdom, which consisted of the ten of the twelve tribes of Israel. And he led those ten tribes. He led those ten tribes in rebellion against the southern kingdom. And so, because they were in rebellion, he sought to break all ties with the other two tribes of, of Israel. So he set up a place because they, they only could go to Jerusalem to the temple to worship. So since that was in the southern kingdom and he didn't want his people going there, he set up two separate places where they could worship. And he erected golden calves in both of those places, one at Dan and one at Bethel. 
He erected them in those places to make it convenient for the people not to have to travel to Jerusalem, but could go right in their own backyard pretty much and worship. In fact, when you go to Israel, and we have, I've seen it, you can visit Tel Dan, and you can see the exact spot where he set up the idol there in Dan. But it went further than that. He erected places of worship in other places to make it even more convenient for them to worship God. And they certainly weren't worshiping the God of Israel. They were worshiping golden calves. He, imported, he, he appointed rather priests of all the different tribes. And we know from the Bible that God said that only priests from the tribe of Levi, Levite priests, could, could serve God. So he completely disregarded that and appointed priests from other tribes. So what he had done was he had effectively created his own God, and he created his own religion. And many have done the same thing today. They've taken Jesus and molded him into who they want him to be. Their Jesus is a Jesus that will never judge sin. Their Jesus will never send anyone to hell. Their Jesus, they believe, is okay with their lifestyle because, after all, Jesus loves us. He loves them so much that he wouldn't want them to change. He would want them to be just who they are. And the list goes on and on and on of the Jesus who the world has made into their image. But listen, that is not the Jesus of the Bible. Yes, Jesus loves you. He loves all of us. But he loved us enough to die for us, and he loved us enough to say, you need to repent of your sin. You need to turn from your sin and turn to me. You need to stop doing what you're doing. Yes, I love you this much, but I love you this much to not want to leave you the way you are now. There must be a change. You know, there's an old um, a friend of mine has this analogy that he uses as illustration. He says, if you're traveling for a, a business meeting and you're late and you're on your way to the business meeting and have a flat tire and you get out and you take all the lug nuts off to change the tire and the lug nuts roll out in the middle of the street and you go out and you pick up the lug nuts and bam, a Mack truck hits you. And you get up and you take the lug nuts, you change the tire, and you travel on to your business meeting, right? Well, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Because if you have an encounter with a Mack truck, there's going to be some changes. And they're not going to be very good changes. And listen, the same is true if you have an encounter with the risen Christ. There has to be a change. You're no longer going to be who you were. You're going to be different. Jesus loved us enough to say, repent, turn from your sin, and turn to me. And yes, Jesus will never send anyone to hell. If you wind up in hell, you wound up there by your own choice, by not accepting him as Lord and Savior. Listen, you can't say you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and then live your life in a way that's completely contradictory to how he commands us to live our lives. It just doesn't work that way. Jesus illustrates for us in this parable, the ten virgins, of just how different those two groups are. So let's dig into that. Now right off the bat, there's some things that jump out at, to, uh, at us about the ten virgins. First, all ten were virgins. All ten of them had lamps. All ten of them had oil for their lamps. All ten of them had grew weary and slumbered. All ten of them were awaiting their bridegroom. And all ten heard the cry of the coming of the bridegroom. 
And so that's pretty much where the similarities stop. So at first glance, they all look the same, don't they? If you saw them waiting there, you'd look at them and say, they're all the same. They're all waiting for the return of the groom. And that's the problem. They all look the same from the outside, but there's a problem with the heart of some of them, and only God knows the heart. There's a heart condition there that's not immediately visible, but God knows exactly what's going on. So here's the differences. Only five took extra oil. Five of them were wise, and five of them were foolish. Only five entered into the feast of the marriage supper, and five were told, I do not know you. So when the bride, who in this parable represents Jesus Christ, arrives, he will find both wise virgins and the foolish virgins. The foolish virgins, or the wise virgins rather, have possessed Jesus. They have possessed faith in Christ. The foolish virgins have only professed a faith, a belief in Jesus Christ. That's the main difference. Five professed faith, and five actually possessed faith. Five followed and obeyed Jesus, and five only professed to know Jesus with their mouth, but they never had Christ in their hearts. So let's dig a little deeper into this parable of the ten virgins. Now all five, all, all five virgins, all ten virgins rather, were waiting for the bridegroom, but only five of them went in with him. The other five, the door was closed to them. Many professing believers today know about the prophecy of Jesus returning. They'll tell you they're waiting for Jesus to return, but they know about the prophecies of, return, of his return in their head, the same, as, the same place they know Jesus, in their head. There's a difference. There's a difference. There's a difference between waiting for the bridegroom to come, for those who have submitted their lives to him or committed to him, and there's a difference between those who have only professed to know that he's coming. But they didn't believe it in their heart. They didn't have Jesus in their heart. Listen to what Paul wrote about salvation. He said, if you've confessed with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10, verses 9 through 10. You know, it's been said that the difference between eternal life and eternal death is only 18 inches. It's the distance between your head and your heart. And I actually took a ruler the other day and measured that, and it's pretty close to 18 inches. That's the difference. It's the difference between knowing Jesus in your head, professing a knowledge of Jesus, and intimately knowing Jesus in your heart. That's the difference. Anyone can profess to know Jesus. But those who believe with all their heart, those who are committed and submitted to him, possess Jesus in their lives. And all ten virgins had lamps. They'd all been waiting for a very long time. As the text tells us, the groom was delayed in his coming. It's been over 2,000 years, hasn't it? And I don't believe we have that much longer, to be honest with you. But those lamps had been burning for a very long time. And so the wise virgins carried extra flask of oil with them for an obvious reason. They knew eventually that oil, that, that they were going to need something else to sustain that lamp. That the oil that they brought wasn't going to be enough. They were going to need more. 
they knew that once that light went out, it was going to get dark. As Christians, we have the light of Christ living inside of us. Jesus has told us to let our light shine before men, to not hide our light under a basket. But as time goes on, for many Christians, some of those lights have grown dim. Some of those lights have even gone out. And so if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, I would say that that light inside of you will never go out. And the only way it could ever grow dim is if you allow it to grow dim by quenching the Holy Spirit in your life. So let this be an encouragement to you. Let it be an encouragement to you to always keep the wick of that lamp trimmed because, listen, his day is drawing near. And when he returns for us, we want our lights to be shining bright when the bridegroom comes for us. So what does that mean to trim the wick of your lamp? Trimming the wick of a lamp back then, and it's something that's been lost on us now because we don't use oil lamps anymore, when you trim the wick, the wick is what drew the oil from the reservoir of the lamp up to the wick, and then you lit the wick and, and you had the light. A poorly trimmed wick would, cre would create a flame, but it would be dim, and it would be smoky. You really wouldn't be that bright at all. When the groom arrived, five of those virgins had extra oil in their flask. They were able to fill that reservoir. They were able to trim that wick so their lights were brining, burning brightly for the return of our Lord. Five, however, made absolutely no provision whatsoever and were left unprepared. Consequently, their oil had run out. They had no light. They were in the dark. Now, I've heard it taught, and even at one time thought myself, that the oil represented the Holy Spirit. But Jesus says that five of these went, five, the five wise virgins told the five foolish virgins to go buy more oil. You cannot buy the Holy Spirit. You can't purchase the Holy Spirit. In the Bible, there's a story of someone who tried to do just that. It was a sorcerer named Simon. He saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given. So he offered the money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Acts chapter 8, verses 18 to 21. You cannot purchase the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells within the believer when we submit our lives to Jesus Christ. So if the oil here doesn't represent the Holy Spirit, what does it represent? And listen, where the scripture is silent, we remain silent, but I have a guess, and it's just a guess. I'm telling you that right up front. I'm not being dogmatic about this, and you should check this out for yourself, and you can believe whatever it is for yourself, but I believe it represents faith. It is by grace that we're saved through faith. Not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. It's not of our works. It's not anything we do. Our faith is through grace. These five virgins, these wise virgins, had enough faith to endure to the end. They were ready when the bridegroom came. And, and I gr and grant you, this is not a perfect analogy or illustration here, but listen, it fits with being prepared. The five foolish virgins thought they had enough faith, but they grew weary because the bridegroom had taken so long in coming. The late is coming. They lost faith. They lost hope that he would ever come. And so when they asked the five wise virgins to have some of their oil, their faith, they were told to go acquire their own faith. 
You know, faith has to be our own faith. It can't be the faith of someone else that gets us into heaven. You can sleep in the garage. And during this stay-at-home order, there may be a lot of husbands who are sleeping in the garage. But listen, sleeping in the garage doesn't make you a car any more than thinking because your parents are saved that you're saved. Or because your husband is saved that you're saved. Or your wife is saved that you're saved. It doesn't work like that. Your faith must be your faith. Your faith has to be its own. It has to be original. It has to be genuine. And if it's not, if you don't possess faith in Jesus Christ, and if you don't believe that he's coming back for you, then you will be left out of the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's as simple as that. It's as sad as that. And they're not my words. It's not my opinion. It's what Jesus said. Listen, I, I understand that many of you who are listening to this may think, wow, you're just being judgmental. But you, I need to hear this as much as you do. I'm grateful that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to remind us to check our faith, to do a self-inventory from time to time, to, to see if our actions actually support our faith or if our actions belie our confession of faith. I need, I don't know about you, but I need that faith check in my life because it helps me keep my, my walk on the right track. So I'm thankful. I'm thankful that the Lord reminds us to do that faith check, to see if we truly are of the faith. Crises and trials serve to do the same thing, don't they? This trial, this crisis we're in the midst of right now shows us, will show us our weaknesses, to show us where we need to shore up our faith, to show us where the, where the holes are in our faith. And now more than ever before, we must be assured of our faith. Now is not the time to be weak in faith. And what happens next is this probably the scariest part of this parable. The five virgins enter the wedding feast, the five wise virgins. And then the five foolish virgins show up who did not possess faith, only professed it. And they could not enter the wedding feast. The door was locked to them. Worse yet, the bridegroom, Jesus, says to them, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Listen, believers long to hear the words of Jesus Christ. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest, your rest. That's what we long to hear. I couldn't even imagine. I, I, I'm so fearful of hearing those words. I couldn't even imagine. Assuredly, I do not know you. Now, the Greek word that is used here is ido. And it means to see or to perceive or to know intimately. The Lord is saying that the five foolish virgins only knew him in their head only. There was no intimate relationship. They didn't know Christ in their heart. They had never submitted to him. They were never committed to him. They only knew of him. And it's because they didn't possess Jesus in their heart and only professed him with their lips, because they only had a head knowledge of him, they did not enter into the marriage supper of the Lamb. They were left behind. So what's the application here? There's a lot. Jesus said in Mark's gospel, watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowning, crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest 
Coming suddenly, he finds you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. 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 Be prepared. Be prepared for his coming. Be prepared that he could return at any moment. Live your life like he could return today, this evening, at midnight, at dawn tomorrow, sometime during tomorrow morning. Live your life like he could return at any time. Because we don't know when he will return. And in the meantime, we must work, raise our families, be involved in ministry, serve, taking care of the daily things that we have to take care of every day without losing our eternal perspective, knowing that this isn't our home, knowing that what awaits us is far greater than what we could ever imagine here. So the first application of how we are prepared how we can be prepared while living in this world today is living in light of his first coming. That's number one, living in light of his first coming. Jesus came to this earth to show us God in the flesh, to demonstrate to us just how we are to live in this world. We're special. We are special in his eyes. We're all special in his lives, in his eyes. We're all set apart. We're we're set apart so that we're not to be part of this world. We're set apart for him. But I see so many professing Christians even posting things on social media that have foul language in them, that have sexually suggestive content, and I just shake my head when I see this stuff because it should never be. Yes, there is a process of sanctification. When you come to know Jesus Christ, there is a process of sanctification. We We are all learning to walk this walk. But I think a lot of people are stuck in neutral. They're not moving forward and they're not moving backward. They're just stuck. And now is not a time to be stuck in neutral. Now is a time to be searching. Now is a time to be reading. Now is a time to be growing in faith, not losing faith. If we profess that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, then we need to live each and every day like he is our Lord and Savior. If you want to know what that looks like, If you want to know how we are to live our lives, read the Gospels. Read the letters that the disciples wrote. Know how they live. Know what's expected of us. Know what Jesus has commanded us to do. And then apply those those lessons to our life as we live here in this world now. Number two, be discerning. First Chronicles says, of the sons of Issachar who had understanding of the time. They were they were. Praised because they knew the time that they lived in. Jesus said, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, pay attention, watch, listen. I have told you these things beforehand. Did you get that? I've told you these things beforehand so that you know when they happen, it is of the Lord. Paul tells us, now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, the rapture, we ask you, do not be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means. Paul tells us to be able to discern between what's true and what's not true. 
Listen, I don't want you to ever take my word for it or anyone else's word for it. Read your Bibles. Search this out. Ask questions. Compare the pages of Scripture to what you see going on in the world around you and determine for yourself if we are truly living in the last days or not. Discerning the times, knowing the times that we're living in, seeing the pages of Scripture come alive right before you will help give us a sense of urgency and help give us a, a real desire to be prepared, which will put us right in the Scriptures, put us right on our knees, and that's where we need to be, especially now. Number three, don't lose hope. Listen to what Paul wrote to Titus. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. What great advice. What great advice then for Titus and the church? What great advice now for us and the church? We must live in this world. Jesus left us in this world. I mean, it would have been nice if you say you wanted Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. You accepted him, committed to him, submitted to him, and pow, we were out of here. That would be wonderful. But we've been left behind for now, for such a time as this, to be a witness to him. To preach the gospel. We live in this world, but while we're living here, we have to remember what we've been saved from. We have to live our lives in light of our salvation. Live our lives remembering that Jesus gave his life for us so that we could have life and have it more abundantly. To live our life and to remember to never lose hope. Knowing that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. Knowing that he's promised what he's promised, he will do. What he's promised has already come to fulfillment, and he's promised us so many other things that we know will come to fulfillment. Like the promise when he said, in my father's house are many mansions. I go and prepare a place for you. If that wasn't true, I would have told you. I would have told you that's not the case. But that's not what Jesus said. He said, in my father's house are many mansions. I go there and prepare a place for you so that where I am, you will be also. Where I am, you will be also, meaning I'm going to come back and get you, to take you where I am, so that where I am, you will be also. There's hope in those words, isn't there? That's hopeful, that one day, and we hope that it's very, very soon, Jesus is coming back to get us. Number four, comfort and encourage one another, especially during these trying times. Paul wrote, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And by the way, this passage of scripture I'm reading right now is a rapture scripture. It's about the rapture. And with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we will who are alive and remain shall be caught up with him in the air. And just a little, little teaser here, caught up. I'll tell you in Revelation chapter 4 what that means and why we believe this is all about the rapture. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. 
comfort each other with the fact, the truth, the knowledge that Jesus is coming back for his church, that no matter what we have to endure in this life, this isn't all there is to life. This isn't our home. What awaits us is amazingly, indescribably beautiful. And that should excite us. That should excite us to know that he's coming back and it should help us endure the hardships that we face in this life. Listen, doesn't knowing that Jesus hasn't forgotten us, that he's coming back for us, that he wants to come back for us, and you, when, I, when we get into that, to the lesson on the rapture, you're going to learn that it's all involved around a wedding, a Galilean wedding. What bridegroom isn't waiting in joyful anticipation to go get his bride? That's why we believe Jesus is coming back for us and coming back soon. But doesn't knowing that he hasn't forgotten us, that he's coming back for us, doesn't that encourage you? Doesn't that give you comfort? So then we need to share that with one another, to keep our spirits up, to keep our faith strong, to keep our hope up. To not lose faith, to not lose hope, to not lose sight of the fact that he is coming back. Listen, in the world, as we live in it today, it's in crisis. We need to be reminding one another that he's coming back from us, that where he is, we will be also. Number five, to be prepared for the coming of our Lord, we need to live each day as if today could be the day. To live our life with an eternal destination in mind, everything we do, we have to do, there's things we have to do, but do it with an eternal perspective because our life is but our vapor. We are here today and gone tomorrow, so live your life with an eternal perspective. Live like heaven is your home, not this earth, this earth which is passing away each and every passing year. This is not our home. Live like Jesus could come back today, and I can't stay, say that or stress that enough. Number six, be about our Father's business. Don't let anything distract us from what, we, what we've been called to do. Be a witness to Jesus, to the world around us. Jesus told his disciples just before he ascended into heaven, he said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you shall be witnesses to me in all of Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We have that power, the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us as believers in Jesus Christ to be a witness to him in word and in deed. And then it goes on to say in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received them out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. That, my friends, is a promise that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. So if you are a believer a committed and submitted follower of Jesus Christ, continue. Keep on keeping on, as the old saying goes. Continue to endure. Continue to serve. Continue to persevere because our master is coming back. Make no mistake about it. And if you're a non-believer, 
and you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm going to share some verses with you in a few minutes that hopefully you will believe in your heart and you will be saved. And if you're a make-believer, listen, the time to submit your life to Jesus Christ, the time to be committed to him is now. It's now. It's now. He wants you to come out of this world now and come back to him, to rededicate your life to serve him and serve him only. Because, listen, when the rapture occurs, it will be too late to do that. So, in conclusion, I want to end with some verses or some thoughts about salvation. And if you're listening to me, if you're listening to the sound of my voice, or watching this on Facebook Live, or watching this on the website, however you're hearing this, and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or you've fallen away from Him, you've lost hope, you've lost faith, there's a simple process of coming to know Jesus, of being assured, of knowing that you know that you know that you're His, and that you will leave here in the rapture of the church. It's as simple as A, B, C. A, Admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you've fallen short of the glory of God. Admit that you haven't been walking with Him. Admit that you haven't been, you've been living your life no differently than the world lives it. Admit that to Him. Confess it to Him. Listen, He already knows what's going on in our life. He already knows what's happening. He wants to hear it from our mouth. He wants us to confess it, to repent of it, and turn from it. B. Believe in your heart. Believe with all your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus died for your sins, that he rose from the dead and will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Believe that with all your heart. Don't just say it with your lips. Don't just profess it with your mouth. Don't just think it in your head, but believe it in your heart. Submit to him. Commit to him right now as Lord and Savior. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me sacrifice make that sacrifice to make Jesus your to have Jesus as your Lord and Savior and to make that commitment to follow him all the days of your life and then see call upon the name of the Lord call upon the name of the Lord confess that you can't do this on your own confess that you need him that he is the only way and listen that's what he tells us isn't it I am the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through me Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, and the Bible tells us you will be saved. Call upon his name and say, Lord, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I want to submit my life to you. I want to commit my life to you. And if you do that, if you've done that today, if you've done that in the quiet of your own home, if you've done that on your knees alongside your bed, no matter when you do it, in your car, on your way to work tomorrow, don't wait. Don't wait another moment. If you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you haven't been walking with him, rededicate your life. If you don't know him, submit to him now because tomorrow might be too late. So, Lord, I pray that all who are listening, all who have heard this message this morning would be stirred, that they wouldn't look at it as judgmental, they wouldn't look at it as offensive, Lord, but look at it as a call, a wake-up call to get right with you. Lord, I pray that you touch so many hearts and lives this morning, not only by this message, by all the messages that are going out there, that are, that are out there, Lord, on Facebook, on YouTube, on, on every social media platform you can think of. 
What a blessing that is, Lord. And I pray that once this is all said and done, that that never changes, that people will continue to be able to grow and learn through the teaching of so many anointed brothers. So go before us today, Lord, as we partake in communion this morning. And it is in your name we pray. Amen. So this morning is the first Sunday of the month. It is the communion Sunday. We celebrate communion on the first Sunday of the month here, as do many of our brothers and sisters. And so we're going to celebrate communion here together. Uh, the, what, five of us? <laughs> um, and I'm grateful to have people here. I'm grateful for those who are home listening. And uh, listen, we miss you, brothers and sisters. We miss you, and we can't wait for the day when we can do this together again. But until that happens... This is, this is what we have, and I'm grateful for this. So hopefully you got the message this week that we were going to do this together um, here at the church and, and on live streaming and Facebook Live, and hopefully you have something in the house. It doesn't have to be grape juice. It doesn't have to be, it could be orange juice. It could be whatever you have in the house. It doesn't have to be communion bread. It could be a donut. It could be, well, you may not want, you may have had too many donuts this week, but it could be anything. Anything you have in the house, get it together because we're going to partake together. And so as we partake this morning, Lord, I want us to remember to be prepared. I want us to remember more than anything else that when you left here so many years ago, you left here with the promise that you're going to return. And we know, we believe that you are coming back. You know, one of the illustrations I love so much when I think about the Middle Eastern culture, and Jesus was Jewish, this is how they did things in that culture. This is how they did things in those days. When they sat at the table together during dinner, they would pass a big loaf of bread, a big round, flat piece of bread around the table, and each would break a piece off to eat with their meal. And so the picture of that is that they, the symbolism behind that is that that one piece of bread, as they broke off the pieces and, and ingested it, they all became part of that same, that, that one bread was in each of them. They became part of that. And so as we partake this morning, I want to remember that as we partake together as a body of Christ, no matter where you are, no matter where you're seeing this, no matter how you're doing this with your family, alone, however you're doing this, you're never alone. We're all together in this. We're all one. We're all part of a body. We're united we're all part of Jesus Christ. Jesus has brought us together. He's united us. And because of him, we are together. It's a brothership. It's a, uh, a, just a, a brotherhood of, of sisters and brothers in the Lord who are always together, one. And so we'll never be alone. And as we struggle through this time, as we struggle through this crisis, we do it together as a body. We do it together as one. None of us are alone in this. None of us struggle alone. We do this together. So as we partake this morning, as Jesus said, when he broke the bread and he gave it to the disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body, which was given up for you. Jesus willingly, lovingly went to the cross and gave his life for us so that we could have life and have it more abundantly. Not so that we could use that life that he's given us, that new life, to do whatever we want with it, to create our own religion, our own gods with it, but to serve him, to 
submit to him, to commit to him. And I pray, I beg you, if you haven't done that, if you're not doing that, today is the day to do it, to stop whatever it is that you've been doing and commit yourself, submit yourself to Jesus Christ right now as he submitted himself to the will of the Father to die for our sins. We submit to him right now and say, Lord Jesus, we are yours. We are yours now and forevermore. Let's partake. Then on that night, Jesus took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And it never ceases to amaze me how that particular verse always seems to fit into the message on the first day of every month. And, and so it's certainly, it's a God thing. It certainly fits with our message this morning that he's coming back. He's coming back for us. And he promises us right here in this verse in Matthew chapter 26, he promises right here that I will not drink this again until I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is coming back for his church. He shed his blood on the cross so that Whoever come to him and are washed by his blood, are washed clean of our sin, and we are able to enter into the kingdom of heaven. We are able to enter into eternity with him. Listen, Jesus set the bar. Perfection. The bar is perfection. In order to, be, in order to enter into heaven, you have to be perfect. And since none of us are perfect, the only way to do that is through him. That's why he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Because when we're covered by his righteousness, when he gives us his righteousness, we're then covered by that righteousness. And God no longer sees an imperfect vessel. He sees us covered by the perfect blood of his Son. So as we partake this morning, let's remember the sacrifice that he made for us so that we could spend eternity with him. So that when he comes for his church... It means he's coming for you and I. Let's partake. God bless you guys. Thank you for being with us this morning. I hope you were blessed by the message, and I hope you're blessed as we close in worship. Let's worship him now, our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. God bless you guys.